0: Yup, to my relatives. Hello, this is Mark Charles, and it is President's Day, Monday, uh, February twentieth, uh, twenty twenty-three, and I'm sitting down with my second cup of coffee. You can see I'm wearing my OnLearn shirt this morning because we have to work on creating common memory regarding President's Day, and I've done this before. And I'm going to do it again, but I want to talk about the unsettling truths regarding. President Abraham Lincoln, who most Americans, including Democrats and Republicans, consider to be one of the greatest presidents in our nation's history. Um, but before I begin, I want to do as I always do, which is acknowledge that I'm speaking to you from what's now called Washington, D.C. But these are the traditional lands of the Piscataway, and I want to honor the Piscataway as the host of the land where I'm living. I want to thank the Piscataway for the stewardship of these lands. And I want to just state how humbled I am to be living on these lands today. So there's a lot of videos and I've put a lot of content out there regarding Abraham Lincoln. If you're kind of new to my channel or you haven't uh, heard me before, I'm going to go over some of the basics today. I'm not going to go in depth. I've done literally hour, hour and a half long lectures regarding Abraham Lincoln and some of his uh, white supremacists and uh, ethnic cleansing legacy that has been buried um, and and instead of mythology has been created about his actual history and what he actually did. But uh, before I began, well, no, I'll I'll go right into this. We'll talk about some things at the end. But um, yeah, so I want to just start by uh, telling you some of the story about how I began to deconstruct my understanding of Lincoln, right? If you read the book I co-authored, Unsettling Truths, you will know that uh, chapters nine and 10 are probably two of the hardest chapters to read in this book, because in those chapters, we wrestle with the, with the fact that the victors read the history, and then point out that because the United States of America has never lost a war that matters, we actually have very little understanding of our actual history, and that has been most clear in who we understand Abraham Lincoln to be. I frequently ask the question when I lecture, you know, I ask ask my audiences, um, if Nazi Germany won World War II, if they won the war, because the victors write the history, how do you think the Nazi historians would have recorded the Holocaust? Well, we have Holocaust deniers today. Imagine if they won the war, right? What Holocaust? There was no Holocaust. If Nazi Germany won World War II, how would they, the Nazi historians, have portrayed the legacy of Adolf Hitler? Well, he would clearly be one of their greatest leaders ever, right? He brought them from global obscurity to national dominance, global dominance. He would be largely considered their greatest leader ever. That's not what gets people so upset about chapters nine and 10. What gets them upset is we go through and in those two chapters clearly demonstrate that that is exactly what the United States of America did with Abraham Lincoln. When you compare Lincoln side by side to most American presidents, he is clearly one of the most blatantly white supremacists, ethnic cleansing presidents in our nation's history. Comparing him to other U.S. presidents isn't even an apples-to-apples comparison. Comparing Abraham Lincoln to Adolf Hitler is actually a much better comparison when you actually read the quotes of both men and look at the policies and the intentions of both men. But again, if I start out that way, we'll never get there because people just turn off, right? No one wants to hear about that or talk about those things. But this is something I'm very convinced we have to learn how to wrestle with. We have to learn how to wrestle with because it's not just the fact that we have this person in our history who was so clearly dehumanizing and white supremacist and genocidal. But what's most troubling is the fact that we celebrate him as our greatest leader. And I actually argue in the book and in other lectures I've given that the reason he's our greatest president. It's not because of the mythology, but because of what he actually did, which is he gave us as a nation the tools that we are using today to continue to enact white supremacy and dehumanizing policies. That's why we celebrate him. That's why he's our greatest president. We don't talk about that, but that's really why he is the favorite of both parties. So I, like most Americans, I grew up completely immersed in the legacy of Abraham Lincoln, right? He was, he was a good guy. He, the, the story is the mythology is that Abraham Lincoln abolished slavery that he, um, yes, there was a bit of an understanding of he had a troubled past, um, but he went on to abolish slavery and develop this relationship with Frederick Douglass. And he was kind of the redemption story of, the United States of America. Right, and this and and he went on to become the very humble beginnings to becoming the greatest president in the history of our nation. And I believe that. For most of my life, including much of my adult life, um even when I moved to DC, I remember when I moved to DC and I I don't remember actually the first time that I observed this. But I I already knew that Abraham Lincoln was the president who ordered the execution of the Dakota 38. I was already aware of that. Again, it was just a slight blemish on his overall legacy because overall the belief was he did all these great things. But I already had a bit of a, a bit of a of that was already beginning to break down just a little bit. And I remember I was, and I don't remember the exact time, the first time I observed this, but I was at I was at the Lincoln Memorial. And if you go to the memorial, right, it's the Lincoln Memorial is the largest, the grandest memorial on the entire mall. It has this massive statue of Lincoln there? It's built based off of a temple from Greece. It literally is a temple. And Lincoln is sitting there in this immense grandeur and there's quote and it's almost a very religious place right it's a very very sacred space i mean we we have the speeches by dr king and other civil rights leaders were there and right it's this it's this sacred space where we believe our nation comes together to really wrestle with our value for equality and for the freedoms that we all enjoy and at the base of that museum, there's a small of, of that memorial. There's a small museum. I think the reason most people find it is it's not well advertised, it's not well publicized, but it's right near the bathrooms. And so, if you go downstairs looking for the bathroom, you have to walk right by the entrance into this museum to um, to view or to get to the bathroom. And I think that's I think that's how I found it. I forget, but I remember we were down there and in this in this museum, it's a. Uh, It's uh, the size of a large classroom, maybe. It's a few rooms, uh, not, not very big. It's nothing compared to the size of the entire memorial. And on the wall, there are marble plaques hanging. They're like three feet tall, maybe four feet tall, two and a half feet wide. And etched in these stones are different quotes about the legacy of Abraham Lincoln. And on one of the walls... There's these five plaques right there that I have pictured, and they are about his thoughts on the union. And in the middle of that wall, the center plaque says, I would save the union. My paramount object in this struggle is to save the union. It is not to save or destroy slavery, said Abraham Lincoln. If I could save the Union without freeing any slave, I would do it. If I could save by freeing all the slaves, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing some and leaving others alone, I would also do that. Now, this plaque is not lamenting the fact that Abraham Lincoln did not believe black lives mattered, which is what he clearly stated here, right? This is a wall stating how high of regard, he had for the union we're not the, the the museum isn't lamenting this quote it's celebrating it look at how much lincoln loved the union <laughs> it boggled my mind that it was sitting there completely boggled my mind and i remember for the first few years that i lived here in washington dc i would actually go down to the memorial on presidents day or on Lincoln's birthday, both in February. And I would stand up at the top of the memorial near the statue. And you stand there long enough, right? People eventually, someone's gonna come up and say, hey, can you take a picture of me in front of this memorial? It happens all the time. So I would stand there and wait for someone to ask me to take a picture. And then I would strike up a conversation with the people. And we would talk, they would talk about the greatness of Abraham Lincoln. I would say, well, did you know Abraham Lincoln did not believe Black Lives Mattered? And they would look at me like I was crazy. And they say, what? I said, oh, yeah, there's a plaque right in the basement of this memorial in the museum that clearly states Abraham Lincoln did not believe Black Lives Mattered. And they would look at me like I was crazy. I said, I'm happy to show you. And I would walk with them down from the the statue, down the steps, around the corner, into that museum, and I would show them this plaque. And they would be stunned. One day I was standing next to this plaque downstairs. This Again, this was on President's Day, I believe. I was just standing there, observing it, watching people go by and looking at this, and no one was reacting right? No one's reading it in shock or horror. And at one point there was this African-American family passing by and they're going, you know, people kind of go step by step around the museum and they read each of the plaques and then they kind of, you know, think about it and move on to the next one. And this family came by and I saw them reading all the plaques and I saw them get to the plaque that we have pictured here regarding the, uh, the, regarding the, um, Union, and the guy was reading the plaque, and then he moved on to the next one. And I paused, and I said, sir, did you read that plaque? He said, yeah. I said, did you see that it stated Abraham Lincoln did not believe Black Lives Mattered? He looked at me like I was crazy. He looked back at the plaque. He read it. His eyes kind of bugged out. He grabbed his phone and he's like taking a picture. He's like, oh, my God. I mean, this is how buried we have this actual history rambling where people can read the quote on the wall where it clearly states, right? If I could save the thing without freeing any slave, I would do it. If I could free, if I could save by freeing all the slaves, I would do it. If I could save by freeing some and leaving others alone, I would also do that. There was a quote literally stating Abraham Lincoln does not believe, did not believe Black Lives Mattered. And people read it and it doesn't even phase them. It doesn't even phase them. And so I would, I again, this stunned and I wasn't too surprised because it took me a while to even get it to the point where I could acknowledge that, yeah, Abraham Lincoln did not believe this, that Black Lives mattered, as he so clearly stated. And so I used it, and I used this in my lectures, in my speaking. This was before we wrote the book. I used this as evidence about how implicit the racial bias is within our country, right? Where Even Abraham Lincoln. This great man who fought and lost a war was assassinated because of his belief in ending abolishing slavery. Um, even Abraham Lincoln had an implicit racial bias. And so as, as we were writing our book, and it literally took us four years to write this book, and one of the reasons it took four years is because of this story I'm telling you right now. So we had our section of the book kind of mapped out. We had kind of the way we were going to go through it. And we had a section where we were looking at implicit racial bias. And I wanted to wrap up that section. I've been actually working on it for a few months and I wanted to wrap it up. And I thought a great way to close that section or even that chapter was to include this story about Lincoln and the, uh, and the, uh, the quote at the memorial, not just that Lincoln believed this, but that we as Americans could read this and not even be fazed by it, right? Not even be fazed by the fact that according to Abraham Lincoln, black lives don't matter, right? We, but we don't even see that when we read it. That's how implicit the racial bias is in our country. So I wanted to make that point. And so it was, it was during the fall and my, I would take my daughter to school in the morning, and uh, I wanted to get this chapter, this section written so we can move on to another section. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to wake up early tomorrow morning, maybe an hour before I have to take my daughter to school. I'm going to write this story into that section. I'm going to close up that chapter, be done with it, and move on to the next section. And so I woke up that morning Literally, just to to, I I had spoken about this story numerous times. I had talked about it numerous times. I knew it well. I just had to write it. And so I thought, take me in 45 minutes tops. And so I sat down to write it. And as I sat down to write it, I thought, well, I should probably give the context. So the context is that the editor of the New York Tribune, um, Horace Greeley, had written an op-ed. And it actually states this on the plaque there. He wrote an op-ed demanding the immediate emancipation of enslaved peoples, which was a promise that Abraham Lincoln gave when he he ran for president. And so in in, uh, late 1862, the fall of 1862, Horace Greeley, the editor of the New York Tribune, wrote this scathing op-ed demanding the immediate emancipation of enslaved peoples. And... Abraham Lincoln had already written the Emancipation Proclamation. It was in his desk. It was sitting in his desk. But he was concerned because there were four states, Missouri, Kentucky, Maryland, and Delaware, that had not seceded from the Union, but they allowed enslavement. And Abraham Lincoln was concerned about the political fallout within those states. And so he was hesitant to released the Emancipation Proclamation because he didn't know what to do politically regarding the the influence of of the, the slave owners in those four states. And so instead of releasing the Emancipation Proclamation, he responded to Horace Greeley in a letter. And in his letter... Is when he stated what's on this quote that says, "I would save the Union." He's assuring the slave owners in these four states. My paramount object in this struggle is not to save the Union. He wrote, "It's not. It's it's to save the Union. I mean, it's not to save or destroy slavery. I don't care about slavery. If I could save the Union without freeing any slave, I would do it. If I could save by saying all the slaves, I would do it. If I could save by freeing some and leaving others, I would also do that." That was his response. And so I went back and I actually read the letter by Horace Greeley. Now, Horace Greeley in his letter that morning, I was reading this, he references something that Lincoln said in the inauguration. So you see, in the inauguration speech in 1860, the Senate that morning was actually in a tizzy. There were already states threatening and beginning to secede from the Union because of Abraham Lincoln's, um, uh, because of his, uh, his victory and his views on chattel slavery. Um, and so early that morning, the Senate passed what's called the Corwin Amendment. Now, the Corwin Amendment constitutionally protects enslavement in states where already existed. And so the Senate passed that amendment that morning, and it was waiting to be ratified. And in his inaugural address, Abraham Lincoln actually addresses the Corwin Amendment and states that he supports it. And then he also addresses the fact that there is a lot of unease in the country regarding um, his thoughts on enslaved peoples. And let me see if I can find that quote here. Um, Shoot, maybe I don't have it right here. Okay. I don't have the quote right in front of me. But um, anyway, so Abraham Lincoln, in his inaugural address, right, he addresses the fact that there is a lot of unease regarding his, um, his, presidency because of, of what um, his views were on enslavement. And he actually wrote in our, I'll read this for you. I don't have a, a, a graphic for it, but I'll read it for you. He said, I understand our proposed amendment to the constitution to the effect that the federal government shall never interfere with the domestic institutions of the states, including that a person's held to service to avoid misconstruction of what I have said, holding such a provision to now by implied constitutional law. I have no objection to its being made express and irrevocable. So he's agreeing with the Corwin Amendment right there. Um, He also goes on to state that apprehension seems to exist among the peoples of the southern states, that by the ascension of a Republican administration, their property and their peace and personal security are to be endangered. There has never been any reasonable cause for such apprehension. Indeed, the most ample evidence to the contrary has all the while existed and been open to their inspection. It is found in nearly all of the public speeches of him who now addresses you. I do but quote for, from one of the speeches when I declare that, and then it says, I have no purpose. This is the quote. Now, so Abraham Lincoln agrees with the coronary amendment. And then he says, so there's apprehension about my views on enslavement, but you don't have to be worried about this because I've made it very clear how I feel about black people. And so, right one and, and so then he he starts quoting the Lincoln Douglas debates. Now, like most Americans. I knew the Lincoln-Douglas debates were bad, right? I knew Lincoln said some things that were very dehumanizing in them. I knew I knew enough about the Lincoln-Douglas debates that I shouldn't read them, right? which is what most Americans know about them, right? That, yeah, you shouldn't read those. They're, they're not good. But now I have a quote from Lincoln in his inaugural address where he's trying to assure owners of enslaved peoples at his inauguration that they don't have to worry about his thoughts on black lives because of something he said in the Lincoln-Douglas debates. And so I thought, crap, right? This is my 45 minutes before I take my daughter to school to write this story into the thing, and I'm getting drugged down this rabbit hole, but now I have to go and read the Lincoln-Douglas debates. So I Googled the quote. I have no purpose was the beginning of the quote. I Googled that. I found it on the National Park Service website. They have all the Lincoln-Douglas debate manuscripts, transcripts, right there. And I started reading the quote that he started giving. And he says, I will say then that I am not, nor ever have been in favor of bringing about in any way the social and political equality of the white and black races, that I am not nor have been in favor of making voters or jurors of Negroes, nor qualifying them to hold office, nor to intermarry with white people. I will say in addition to this that there is a physical difference between the white and black races, which I believe will forever forbid the two races living together in terms of social and political equality. And in so much as they cannot so live while they do remain together, there must be the position of superior and inferior. And I, as much as any other man am in favor of having the superior position assigned to the white race. (laughs) I read that quote and I'm just like, holy crap. Abraham Lincoln is a blatant, white supremacists. I didn't even know what to do. I felt cold and very angry. I couldn't believe what I was reading as I was reading this quote. And I had to turn off my computer and I had to stop writing. And... I took my daughters to school and I'm, I just was stuck kind of pondering what I had just read. And I could not believe that Abraham Lincoln was declaring that he was a white supremacist. And that morning, which this was in the fall, began probably a four-month journey. This might have been like October, maybe November. And this lasted up until probably February, maybe even March or April of the next year. Where literally every week I was calling my co-author, Seung Chan Ra, and I was saying, you will not believe what else I'm learning about Abraham Lincoln. Right? You will not believe the things that he said or the things that he did. The way he spoke and what he felt, Right? And I read more of the Lincoln Douglas debates, and they were absolutely disgusting. Right? Lincoln, he goes on in the debate stating that he does not believe that the Declaration of Independence applies to Black people or people of color. That he does not believe Black people should be made citizens of the United States. Right? He just very, and, I didn't even understand this then. What I learned later, right, as I was again piecing all this over years into context, is in 1856, See, the Lincoln-Douglas debates were in 1858. In 1857, the Supreme Court passed the um, the the uh, why can't I think of it. Um, in eighteen fifty-eight, the Supreme Court passed the Dred Scott decision, which literally stated that our founding documents were not intended to include people of color, especially formerly enslaved peoples. And so what was going on was in 1857 is when that ruling came out. So when Judge Douglas and Abraham Lincoln ran for Senate in 1858. That was the debate of the day, was do our founding documents apply to black people? And Abraham Lincoln was very, very, very clear that he did not believe, right? He was taking a stand that he did not believe that the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution were ever intended to include people of color, right? In one of the debates, this is in October 15 of 1858, he was asked point blank about the Declaration of Independence applying to the black race. And he said, I think the authors of that notable instrument intended to include all men, but they did not mean to declare all men equal in all respects. They did not mean to say all men were equal in color, size, intellect, moral development, or social capacity. When he was asked about making citizens of black people, Lincoln said, well, Judge Douglas has said to you that he has not been able to give from me an answer to the question, whether I am in favor of Negro citizenship. So far as I know, the judge has never asked me the question before. He shall have no occasion to ever ask it again. For I tell him very frankly, I am not in favor of Negro citizenship. Now, my opinion is that the different states have the power to make a Negro a citizen under the Constitution of the U.S. if they chose. But if the state of Illinois had that power, I should be opposed to the exercise of it. So Abraham Lincoln was clearly making a stand in support of the Dred Scott decision. Right? The guy was a blatant, unapologetic, self proclaimed white supremacist. And it was when you read his speeches and put things together, right now it suddenly begins to make perfect sense why the 13th Amendment had a clause in it keeping enslavement legal in prison right? Because Abraham Lincoln campaigned against chattel slavery. He was against the institution of buying and selling black people. But he had no belief whatsoever that black lives mattered. He had no intention of making voters or jurors of black people or allowing them to hold office or to intermarry. He didn't think our founding documents applied to them, right? He was, he was very clear on this. Yes, he wanted to end chattel slavery, but he was absolutely in favor of white supremacy. So he had a dilemma when he became president, which is, what does he now do with these black lives that he has now emancipated, but he doesn't want them to become a part of the union? That was his dilemma. And so his solution was the 13th Amendment. To keep enslavement legal under the jurisdiction of our criminal justice system. That was his solution. The guy was vile. Because we're using this amendment today, right? To remove the civil rights of people of color, right? Our law enforcement is one of the areas where this sort of mentality is rampant. And that was by Lincoln's design. So it was about two months of me literally reading these documents and learning these things and just my stomach. I couldn't even write at this point. I was still processing through it because not only was I incredibly angry at Abraham Lincoln, but I was ashamed and even embarrassed that I believed the mythology of Lincoln, that he actually gave a crap about Black lives. So that was the first step. In February, it was literally, it was I, this was probably February of maybe 2019. I think it was February of 2019. Or maybe it was 2018. I forget the exact year. But I was asked to speak at an event by the Poor People's Campaign on President's Day. And I was given two minutes to talk about my perspective on the day. And I decided to find this was right in the middle, right? I was literally going through all this stuff on Lincoln. I'm like, okay, if I have two minutes (laughs) in a fairly public forum to talk about President's Day, I'm going to deconstruct Lincoln. And all I had at this point was his white supremacist attitudes. And so I'm like, I'm going to do this in these two minutes. And so I was sitting here at the house. I was actually downstairs in our kind of our den. And I was sitting there, not even reading anything, not even pondering anything or learning anything new. I was thinking about what I was going to say that night. And my... The mythology of Lincoln had already begun to crumble as I was learning more and more what a blatant and unapologetic white supremacist he was. And I knew that Abraham Lincoln was the president who ordered the, the execution of the Dakota 38. I knew that story. Now, I'm Navajo, and one of the challenges that we faced was the long walk. And the U.S. Army wanted the land in the Southwest, and so they literally came in and ethnically cleansed our lands. Kit Carson, one of the Army captains, came through and he, he burned our, our, our crops, he destroyed our homes, he killed our livestock. He hunted us and chased us throughout Dinete, our traditional lands between our sacred mountains rounded up nearly 10,000 of us, and marched us down to Bosque right? He did these horrible and horrific things to him, to us. And all of my life, I have blamed um, the long walk on Kit Carson. When I think of who was it that did these horrible things to our people, I always, always, always blamed Kit Carson. And I was sitting there that morning, and I was just pondering what I was going to say that night. Not even necessarily thinking about the long walk, but thinking about Lincoln and what I was going to say. And the dates just began to fall in line. And I'm like, okay, the long walk began in 1863. 1864 is when they started moving us down to Busco Redondo. And I'm like, holy crap. That's right in the middle of Abraham Lincoln's presidency. And again, it never occurred to me that Abraham Lincoln was the president responsible for the ethnic cleansing and genocide of my people. And that morning, sitting there preparing for this talk later that day, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. And I'm like, holy crap. And I just kind of sat there stunned. And then, right, so now we have the Dakota 38, which was in 1863, 1862 and 1863, the removal. We have the Long Walk in 1863 and 1864. And we have Sand Creek, also in 1864. And I'm like, oh, my gosh this is all Lincoln's legacy. This is what he did. And so I began to like process through this. I even started to Google like Abraham Lincoln and genocide and there's not much written, right? I I found a few theses written by some graduate students but I couldn't find much credible that really highlighted the ethnic cleansing genocidal policies of Abraham Lincoln. And I was trying to piece these things together. What was Abraham Lincoln doing? What was he thinking? And I, I came across in 1862 that Abraham Lincoln signed these two bills. He signed the Homestead Act and the Pacific Railway Act. He signed them in the spring and summer of 1862. The Homestead Act allocated 160 acres to any settler willing to go west and homestead for five years. And the Pacific Railway Act allocated the land and the resources to complete the Transcontra Railway. So I began to think, okay, this is what's going on with this, um, this is what's going on with this uh, Abraham Lincoln. But it wasn't until I found this map that it actually began to finally fall into into place. And let me show you the first graphic that I had here. And so I found this map. Now this map is a map of the US and it had the early routes of the Transcontinental Railway. The primary route, the central route had reached Omaha, Nebraska. And they had to go through Nebraska, Northern Colorado, Wyoming, Utah, near Idaho, Nevada, and then would come out near San Francisco. There was a Northern route that started in Duluth, Minnesota, went through Minnesota, North Dakota, Montana, Idaho, and came out near Seattle, Washington. And there was a Southern route that went through the Northern Territory of New Mexico, the Northern Territory of Arizona, and came out not too far from Los Angeles. And as I began to take some of these early um, massacres, and I began to put them on this map, I was astounded by what I saw. And let me show you this map real quick. Hold on, it was mind boggling when I began to see this. But um, So we have the removal of the Dakota Winnebago. From Minnesota. We have the Sand Creek Massacre in eastern Colorado. And we have the long walk of the Navajo and the Mescalero Apache in the territory of New Mexico and Arizona. And then I found out later that there was actually another massacre. It actually was the first massacre. In order, these went chronologically from the Winnebago, uh, the, the Dakota 38 in Minnesota to the Long Walk in New Mexico, and then Sand Creek Massacre in November of 1864. But I found about this massacre later, which was the Bear River Massacre, which happened in northern Utah and southern Idaho. And this is actually the bloodiest massacre in the history of our nation. And there is a gentleman who actually was on my of Coffee a few weeks ago. His name is Darren Perry. He's a former uh, leader of the Shoshone Nation, and he has now written a book that I've actually talked about a lot, Bear River Massacre, Shoshone History, by Darren Perry, where he talks about the, the Bear River Massacre. And this is not only one of the most violent and deadliest massacres in the history of our country, it's also one of the most buried. In fact, when I was doing research for *Unselling Truths, I was literally looking and creating lists of massacres, and I could find very little, if any, information on the Bear River Massacre. I didn't learn about it until I, I found about Darren Perry's work just a few years ago. And when I looked at that massacre, so that massacre happened right up here, and literally it took place within miles of where the Golden Spike was driven a few years later connecting the north the eastern and the western routes of the transcontinental railway and so what this did is it just made it abundantly clear what Abraham Lincoln was doing right after signing the homestead act and the pacific railway act over the next 3 years of his presidency he was literally ethnically cleansing the primary routes of the transcontinental Railway. And he actually makes this clear in a speech that he gives, literally just a few months later. Um, let me find, where is that speech at? I have it. in in his annual address in 1864. Now, this address happened on... December 8, I believe, December 8 or December 9 of 1864. And Abraham Lincoln, in his speech, proclaimed that 1.5 million acres were entered in under the Homestead Law and the great enterprise of connecting the Atlantic with the Pacific States by railway and telegraph lines has been entered upon with a vigor that gives assurance of success. Now, what's most shocking about this speech is it literally, literally came, um, that's not the right one, sorry. It literally came like 10 days after the massacre at Sand Creek. 10 days after the final of these four Indian massacres. Abraham Lincoln was boldly declaring to the nation, that we're going to complete this railway. We're going to finish it. He absolutely knew what he was doing. So not only was Abraham Lincoln one of the most blatant, unapologetic, and self-proclaimed white supremacists in our nation's history of presidents, but he was actually one of the most ethnic cleansing and genocidal presidents that we've had as a nation either as, as well. And so, and I'm just giving you some high level details here. I'm not even going in depth into all of his speeches and all the things that he was doing, but it is grotesque. Abraham Lincoln was a vile, vile man. And comparison between him and Adolf Hitler are not far-fetched. One of the primary differences I believe is technology. Hitler had better technology so he could do his ethnic cleansing and genocide better than Abraham Lincoln could. But their beliefs and their goals, almost the exact same. And so it bothers me that not only do most Americans not know this history, but it bothers me that we celebrate the man who did these horrible, horrible, horrible things. Right? We, we call out Confederate generals. We even call out Andrew Jackson. But everybody loves Lincoln. The Republicans love to claim that they are the party of Lincoln. President Obama, our nation's first black president, was sworn in with his hand on the Lincoln Bible. His mythology is so pervasive, and his true history is so covered over, it disgusts me. It, it literally disgusts me, what we celebrate as a nation. Because when we celebrate Lincoln, we are technically, not even technically, we are literally celebrating genocide. Right? If you go to the, 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 the Lincoln Memorial, you will find this quote hanging on the wall you will find the memorial is declaring that according to Lincoln, black lives don't matter. We are not lamenting this quote. We are celebrating it. And it's disgusting. It's absolutely disgusting. And we're not gonna make much progress as a nation if we can't deal with this history. We are never going to be a land where we, the people, actually means all the people. If we continue celebrating people like Abraham Lincoln, we have to acknowledge who he was, what he did, what he advocated for, and the incredible violence and injustice and white supremacy and ethnic cleansing that he stood for. One of my goals this year, and I've, I've been actually thinking a lot about this, but one of my goals actually for the next two years is I really want to help our nation wrestle, not only with Abraham Lincoln's history and his, his actual what he did, but I want us to wrestle with the fact that we celebrate him. And I want to use this as a way to hopefully expand the conversation. I've already been working so hard these past, almost this past decade, to initiate on creating a common memory and addressing our foundational level problems. And I'm in the process right now of, of, of uh, developing about a 70, 65 to 75 minute, kind of almost like a one act show, like a, a presentation. Regarding Abraham Lincoln. It's going to be a bit different than the other presentations I've given. It will be a lecture, very much so, but it will have a bit of the absurdity expressed even in maybe a comedic way to get us to understand how absurd it is that we, we celebrate this history. It will talk about some of my own, both my nation's History of the Navajo Nation and my family's history with the genocidal policies of Abraham Lincoln. It will wrestle with things at, at, a, at an emotional level, at an educational level. And I'm taking this entire year to develop this. I'm, I'm kind of, it's going to be somewhat similar to my TEDx talk, if you've ever seen that. You know, it'll be well rehearsed, it'll be well presented, it will have some strategic slides throughout. But it will it will it will be present, it will be about 75 minutes in length. And I'm gonna take this whole year to develop it and to even test it with audiences around the country. My goal is to begin starting maybe in March or possibly April um, to begin to test it in different cities around the country to kind of some close audiences and to really refine the message. And then in uh, in 2024 to begin to take that presentation both public and national. And I really want to engage our nation with this history. I, I, I'm I deeply offended and even hurt that we celebrate someone like Abraham Lincoln. And I know that our inability to wrestle with who he was and what he did is one of the things that is blocking us from actually, again, acknowledging our uh, uh, becoming who we want to be as a nation, or at least who we say we want to be. So I've decided to take the next two years to really try to address and see if I can get a dialogue going regarding not only who Abraham Lincoln was, but why we celebrate him as a country. I'll be posting more details about this on my social media. You can find more information about that. But I, that's my goal. And I'm going to continue to address this. I'm going to continue to talk about this and see what happens and what we can do with this. But my goal is to, is to uh, get this out there so that we can really address it. Anyway my relatives, I want to thank you for joining me this morning. There's a few things I want to just talk about before we end. as you know, it is President's Day. If you're following me on social media, you'll see that uh, yesterday I, I tweeted this out on on Twitter um, and uh, there was a um, a uh, uh, article an op-ed in the um, New York Times that ran yesterday. It was titled The Decolonization of Christianity is Not Complete. And uh, in this article, it actually referenced and it, it, it uh, called out and referenced um, On Selling Truth and the work that Sung Chun and I did on this book. Um, and so I'm very grateful for that um, being being in there. It was uh, the link. It, the article is is for subscribers only, so I don't even think you can get a free read of this. Uh, you have to be subscribed to New York Times to read it. But uh, Akemani Uwan is the co-author of a book called Truth Table: Black Women's Musing on Life and Love, and Liberation, and she's the co-host of a podcast called Truth's Table with uh, Christina Edmondson, and so um, I wanted to just thank her for uh, referencing our book in this article. Um, She was interviewed in this article, and I was very grateful to see that, and I love to to see kind of the exposure of our book as people continue to read it. And so I'm going to give the link directly to this article in the New York Times, right here in the chat. Um, Let me put this in here. And then um, I'm also going to give a link to uh, Christina and Ecomini's podcast. And they only come out with episodes every few months, but they're on Apple Podcasts. And so you can get that there. If you want to hear, last year for President's Day, I did an hour and a half lecture on Abraham Lincoln. And if you want to see that lecture, um, I just put the link for it right there in the YouTube channel. And also, um, if you want to uh, follow my second cup of coffee, we now have it out as a podcast. And so you can get it on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts. You can get it on Spotify and on several other of the major podcast websites. And we just most recently got um, our content up onto Apple Podcasts. And so if you like to listen to this when you're driving or when you're doing a workout or something and you don't need the video, you just want the audio, um, you can download it as a podcast and you can get it from there. I also wanted to let people know that um, I am speaking later this month in, uh, uh, our, I'm sorry, in April at Freedom Rising, uh, which is uh, a conference in New York City. And um, they're doing a registration drive today. And so they actually have, and I'm gonna try this, this is a new feature of uh, my, um, my uh, streaming site, but they are doing a, uh, Uh, sale today of their conference. And so if you want to get a discounted rate, it's normally $199 to attend the conference. Um, It's now, if you register today, it's $119. But here's the QR code if you want to get that site and register for it today. Um, It's the Freedom Rising Conference. It is April 28th through 30th. And uh, it's in New York City. Myself and many, many, many other people are going to be speaking at this conference. And so I really um, uh, hope you can attend it if you would like to. I also want to um, highlight this podcast that I did a few weeks ago. It's actually getting a lot of good attention. I've gotten a lot of good feedback from it. It was the Antioch podcast. And it was um, an interview with me. And the question they asked me is, why am I still a Christian? Which I really, I really actually liked um, that episode. It went really well, and so I, uh, I'm sharing that Antioch podcast there. But I wanted to use it to actually highlight something, because two weeks ago, when I was in, um, in uh, Grand Rapids at the Worship Symposium, and at that, uh. When I was in Grand Rapids at the worship symposium, um, I had a chance to meet with some friends of mine who I've been I've known for almost 15, 20 years, uh, Ray and Sharon Miniacon, who are Aboriginal from Australia, and they were speaking at this conference. And I got to spend four days with them. And right, one of the questions that I get frequently that most indigenous people get frequently is, why are you a Christian when the church And the faith has such a horrible history with your people. Why do you choose to follow this faith? And I've wrestled with that question a lot. I answered that question um, when I was with the Antioch podcast. And I invite you to read that or to listen to that. But there was a response that Ray and Sharon gave. And it was one of the most honest responses I've ever heard to that. And it's completely cause me to go so much deeper in how I answer the question for myself. And later this month on my Patreon, I have a tier on Patreon, which is called um, Join the Conversation. And later this month in my Patreon, uh, when I, I, I usually give a presentation or a lecture once a month for the Join the Conversation tier. And this month, I'll just put into the chat, I'm also going to share the the QR code with you here. But this month, um, for my Join the Conversation tier lecture or presentation, I'm going to be addressing what I heard Ray and Sharon say. And I'm going to be talking about how that actually helped me to be much more honest with my answer and go even deeper than I've ever gone before. And it really is going to become what I think is going to be the intro and the thread to the book I'm working on right now, which is on uh, decolonizing faith, and so yeah, it was a really, really insightful conversation I had with my friends. And if you want to hear me talk about that more or go in depth with that, I welcome you to sign, um, subscribe to my Patreon, and uh, you can you can subscribe to it, and it's the join the conversation tier. And I will be doing that presentation uh, before the end of the month. It will probably be sometime uh, either next weekend or early next week that I'll be doing it towards the end of the month. But uh, if you're able to, I, I invite you to join my Patreon. It's a great way to support the work I'm doing and to be a part of the conversation I'm trying to uh, to generate here. Um, so anyway, so those are the things I want to talk about. Those are the things that I've been thinking about and the things that have been in my mind. I know I gave you a lot of information, especially regarding Lincoln. Um, if you are interested in purchasing the book that I have on Settling Truth, the ongoing dehumanizing legacy of the Doctrine of Discovery, you can actually buy signed copies of that on my website. And we actually have what I'm calling my book study special, where if you buy 10 copies from my website, um, you'll get those copies as well as a free 45-minute virtual Q&A that I'll do with your book study at some point in the next year. And so it's a great way for me to engage the dialogue with people who are interested in studying the book more in depth. Anyway, all of that's available on my website. But uh, I want to thank you for joining me today. Um, I know I've given you a lot of information (laughs) in the past hour, but uh, I really wanted to do something for President's Day because we have to understand our history as a nation, right? We have to create this common memory if we wanna have any hope of having a better community moving forward. And until we can learn to acknowledge the truth of what we've done and who we are, we're never gonna be able to become who it is we say we wanna be. And so we have a lot of work to do, my relatives, and President's Day is just one of the days we have to address, but. So what's going on today? So, I want to share that with you anyway. I hope everyone has a great day. Um, let me look through the chat to see who else is on here. I saw Phil Fox was on here. Yat A Phil, thank you for joining. Um, who else was on here? Miles, Yat A Miles, thanks for joining today. Um, I see, uh, who else caught on Sonia? A, Sonia, thank you for joining me today. Debbie, A, thank you. Yes. Thank you, Debbie, for sharing this. I encourage everyone else to share this as well. And if you can comment on the YouTube channel after the, the stream, it helps it get into the algorithm a bit more, but thank you so much. Um, uh um i also see obsolete elite i'm not sure who that is but thank you for the blessing and thank you for the congratulations on new york times coverage i was very excited that that was in there as well so i'm i'm thrilled to see how uh people continue to go back to the book they continue to reference the book and to use it and while it was never a a bestseller book like a new york times bestseller it continues to engage conversation at some very deep levels all around the nation, and I'm deeply grateful for that. So, any anyway, of my relatives, I I hope you all have a great day. Walk in beauty, and may we all learn how to walk in beauty together. Hug on that.